Hey everyone. Today's Patreon shoutouts go to Andre Cote and James Gennaro. Andre and James are two guys you definitely want on your team if you're going to do things in Ontario politics, and we are so happy to have them support our show. Thank you so much, Andre and James. If you want to be as cool as them, you can head to patreon.com slash OntarioLoud or OntarioLoud.ca and support us for less than the price of a cup of coffee each month. As our support grows, we're going to bring on more help, expand our reach to new audiences, and so much more. So head to patreon.com slash OntarioLoud or OntarioLoud.ca and hit that subscribe button today. Um, sometimes before Sam gets here, I will sit at his, uh, <laughs> microphone and go, I'm Sam Andre. I'm Sam Andre. I do get multiple compliments on my radio voice from random. Welcome to Ontario Lab, the show about politics, public policy, and current affairs had between recovering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Kate Hammer. I'm Alexi White. And I'm Sam Andrea. We've got a great show for you today. We'll be talking about Doug Ford losing his cell phone, bringing an end to the era of him giving out his number publicly. We'll be talking about the mass resignation of the Brantford Children's Aid Society Board of Directors. But first, guys, I feel like we have to talk a little bit about Trump, something I am loath to do. And to be clear, this is a show about Ontario and occasionally Canadian politics, but something about this moment feels a little urgent and just necessary to address. So starting with the obvious, the president is a racist asshole who tweeted that four Democratic congresswomen of color should go back to where they came from if they didn't like what was going on in the USA. I think the exact quote was the crime infested countries they came from. Gross. Uh, Even after a formal rebuke from the House of Representatives, the president appeared at a rally where he stood at the front and sort of looked on as the crowd cheered, send her back in reference to Muslim Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, who came to the U.S. as a refugee born in Somalia. These tweets have prompted Canadian leaders and leaders all over the world to respond. Prime Minister Trudeau said that I think Canadians and people all over the world know exactly what I think about this comment, saying that diversity is Canada's strength and that's not how we do things here. Andrew Scheer has said these divisive comments have no place in society. Jagmeet Singh had perhaps the strongest reply, calling them ugly and racist. Some folks on Twitter have been circulating a video reminding us that Doug Ford called himself a Trump supporter on a City News interview some years ago, saying he wouldn't waver even if the GOP wavers. And so, I don't know, I just want to create some space uh, to reflect on this shitty moment in our politics. Any reflections, thoughts? Um, So maybe I'll start. I think it was obviously a chilling moment. Lots of people are rightfully reflecting on how the United States and its sort of political system can recover from what is happening. And people are throwing around civil war a lot more than they used to. And I just think the whole thing is going to get uglier before it gets better. And as its neighbor, we, I think, can't help but be pulled into and caught up in that. But I think the whole world seems to be backsliding on racism and xenophobia and immigration Broadly, we shouldn't gloat about what's going on here in Canada. I mean, we just have to look at the Quebec religious symbols thing. And I think broadly, you know, People's Party and yellow vests and everything. And so while I thought Trudeau's comments, I was glad that he took the moment to criticize Trump, which he, I think, rightfully picks his moments to do. I also thought the criticism of Trudeau's comments not you know, sort of reflecting on the systemic racism here in Canada and um, what's going on in Quebec. I thought that was really fair criticism. And I, I know they're rightfully sort of holding their powder on what's going on in Quebec because of politics. And I think that that's too bad. Yeah, I guess I'm just sad. 
I, I don't have much more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for me, it felt a little bit like in terms of like sort of big defining moments to respond, it felt a little bit like fouling one into the seats on a two strike count. I don't think it like it certainly didn't hurt. And I'm glad he addressed it and said something taking the swipe at Donald Trump, but not calling it racist. I really agree with that point that not mentioning some of the systemic racism that we're seeing in, in Canada and sort of even worse sort of painting Canada as you know that's not how we do things we're not racist here um, is not true to I think a lot of people's lived experience and if he's trying to um, be sort of a representative of a more progressive Canada I think that sort of starts with acknowledging that we face these things here and I, I think he would like if pressed but I thought the sort of exact comment and, and clip did a little bit of what they probably wanted it to but not not everything. Did it feel like a framing that was trying to avoid avoid talking about Trump personally too specifically, which potentially was a strategy, I mean knowing knowing the delicate ego that the president has and potentially some other considerations that Minister Freeland is probably trying to negotiate right now that maybe they were trying to avoid poking the bear too much with the president and so to condemn racism more broadly without talking to the president personally. So yeah, he doesn't have a lot of love for Justin Trudeau, but I was thinking more recently of the two Canadians um, detained in China right now, right? And how Canada's been trying to leverage the US as a partner in, in freeing them and how actually Donald Trump had sort of said recently that they would be an ally in that. And I, and I, who knows, right, where that's at and whether they were an important ally in that. But, you know, whether there was sort of a critical moment or a critical piece of that in the background or something like that in the background and whether that was sort of making everyone extra nervous about poking his delicate ego at this juncture. And that sort of put them in this impossible position because typically this would be the kind of thing that Justin Trudeau would jump all over, right? Like this is so bread and butter liberal politics to say, no, we're the party that embraces diversity, that embraces newcomers. And so it, it's a bit conspicuous and especially kind of in contrast to Sheer, it's conspicuous that he wasn't jumping up and down all over this. It would be really good timing for him to do that. And he's more than happy to contrast himself, not just to Sheer, but then to the likes of Doug Ford, who's entirely endorsed and embraced Donald Trump. Yeah, it's certainly possible. It's impossible for us to uh, to confirm whether that's whether that's the case. But I think your theory probably holds water, Kate. It's just it's too bad because uh, to me, to me, Trudeau came off like a Republican senator who you know gets cornered somewhere and basically tries to give platitudes about general concepts without actually coming down on one side of the the tweet itself. And, and so the, I thought that parallel, like just the fact that my mind immediately went to like, oh wow, that. That sounds like it could have been, you know, a moderate Republican senator. That's not a great place for him to be in. So, I, yeah, I, I, I think I agree with Chris that uh, I don't think he won any favors with it. And I think he still managed to criticize Trump. So I'm not, I guess, we'll, we'll never really know whether that strategy paid off for them. I, I think generally... The, the reaction of our politicians is sort of a, you know, it's an interesting study in, in our politics, but more broadly, this kind of stuff, I mean, it's discouraging because as Sam said, it's, this is happening across the world and, and you know, racists in Canada are being emboldened as well. But we also just don't have the same level of, of dialogue about racism in Canada that in the United States. And, and part of that is because Trump raises this question constantly and that they have a history in their country of, of talking about racism and having, it, you know, discussions about it more in the open than, than Canadians have. But it's just a reminder to me that we just don't have the same level of coverage about things like Canadian 
border service agency. Every once in a while, carding will flare up in a in a major city, but you know, more generally, there just isn't the same kind of coverage in, in our media. Uh, we don't have the same number of journalists who are looking at, I guess, these long embedded multi generational issues that go back in Canada. Uh, other than perhaps increasingly in uh, the world of indigenous issues, but even then, still leaves a lot to be desired. So uh, I worry about a complacency that sets in in Canada of sort of you know laughing at Donald Trump and not realizing that we have huge problems here as well. Yeah. And I just, you hit on this, Chris, but I just want to restate the obvious that it's just so dangerous how inert we become to more and more blatant racism yeah. globally. I, I, I agree. And I mean, I, I was thinking about Trudeau and this moment and the liberal term in office and and refugees and I like we talked about this before in the pod but like at the beginning of the term like one of the the, the factors that I think helped elect Trudeau a, a sense of compassion for refugees there were, like there was that picture of uh, the Syrian refugee child on the beach and I think the liberals were elected on a plan of we're going to accept more refugees than the other parties. And it played well in that moment. And when they came into power, it was a massive national project to resettle a whole lot of refugees and people. And I sort of contrast it with their policy now and sort of the kind of language we saw in the budget. Arming CBSA border guards is a thing that they're uh, going to be doing. They're trying to negotiate sending re- refugees back to the United States by closing a loophole, that the, the loophole in the Safe Third Countries Agreement. And all of these things are, are going to raise the danger for refugees who are crossing the border who are already in an extremely vulnerable position. And I can't help but think that this moment that the liberals are responding to is in some ways worse. And so uh, I found a bunch of polls that basically said the majority of Canadians don't think we should accept more refugees at this moment, are looking for messages that are going to be you know, tough on the border and that kind of thing. So I just, it how far, to your point, Sam, we have backslid is not only showing up, I think, in the kind of statements our leaders make, but also the policies that Canadians are favoring at this point. Chris, you hit it on the nail on the head. I mean, how can we still have a say third parties, third third country agreement with these guys with the changes that have recently been announced um, by the Trump administration and uh, not accepting migrants coming through Mexico, basically? Like, it's just, it's insane. Oh, yeah. I actually, I actually don't believe that the Trudeau government is anti-immigrant. I think that they're kind of trying to have their cake and eat it too. But I, you know, when push comes to shove, are you going to send a bunch of people back to a country that will, like, where they will face active harm? I'm not sure the answer to that is yes. So um, moving on from the depressing to the also depressing, earlier this month, the Toronto Star reported that 11 board members of the Brant Children's Aid Society would be stepping down in protest over underfunding from the province. So the Brant Children's Aid Society currently has a deficit of over $2 million with an accumulated debt of $3 million. Now, Children's Aid Societies, which sort of oversee youth and care, so like the foster care system, so youth in some of the most vulnerable positions they're ever going to be in, they are not allowed to have a deficit based on MCYS policy. And this is pretty standard for broader public sector. School boards aren't allowed to run deficits. The government, uh, unsurprisingly, has put the blame for the deficit on the board's feet, blaming a more expensive service delivery model for the Brandt organization's debt and financial troubles. However, the board contends that it is provincial decisions under multiple governments that have led them to this point. So their financial statements bear that they were in fine financial shape until 2017 when the Ministry of Children and Youth Services removed $780,000 in funding from their budget to give it to the Six Nations Child Protection Service. This was coupled with an increase in 
their caseload that they were seeing, uh, which the board contended was due to the opiate crisis. The conservatives then, when they took power, cut uh, $28 million from child services across the board, resulting in another hit of almost 200000 to Brandt. Um, and this is part of a planned cut of a billion dollars to the social child social services sector through to 2021. So probably more cuts on the way, but there, the conservatives haven't been clear as to how those are going to roll out to individual organizations. The board, in resigning, said that it would rather run deficits than implement the required cuts and potentially have children die on their watch. Minister Todd Smith put the agency under supervision and uh, issued a statement saying that he'll do everything he can to ensure that service is not impacted by this decision on the board's part. So I was thinking about this. Obviously, it's a it's a really difficult situation for that community. But it's actually not that uncommon for provincial governments to have major disputes with um, the leadership of broader public sector boards and agencies. What do we think of what the board has done here and how the government has handled uh, this file so far? So there's a whole bunch of issues here, as is always the case when you have children's aid society conflicts. You know, children's aid society has a very difficult job. They're stepping into situations that are created by uh, failures in other parts of our safety net, right? So they have a terrible, a terrible job to do that is uh, heart-wrenching in many, many cases. And, and um, you know, they, they try to do their best, but there are a lot of flaws in the system that are not going to be solved necessarily by, you know, changing children's aid, but more by addressing underlying problems. So we've already mentioned opioids, Indigenous and Six Nations reforms. Uh, so you know, transferring more responsibility over to Six Nations for uh, Indigenous children, for example, which is a, which is a positive move. Back in 2017, but, you know, like all children's aid societies, the branch suffers from a huge overrepresentation of Indigenous uh, children in care. So I think it was as of about five years ago, it was uh, 12% of the population is Indigenous, but about a third of the children in care were Indigenous. So, I mean, that, that's a huge uh, local issue for them, but it's not that different than a lot of children's aid societies across Ontario. And then the opioid crisis, I mean, Brant, according to data from just this year, they have the second highest level of hospitalizations as a result of opioid poisoning in Canada, second only to, I believe, Kelowna in BC. So, I mean, these, you know, this is a community that has a lot, a mixture of issues and that go back for a long, long time that have not been dealt with, including things like homelessness, a lack of affordable housing, all kinds of stuff. So they're in a very unenviable position just from the beginning. And yeah, I mean, you, you get this drip, drip, drip issues where you're a small organization that is trying to um, you know, squeeze pennies together to make everything work. And over time, governments have, they neglect things like providing inflationary increases, base budget increases, the funding models get all crazy and out of whack as you sort of layer on these little programs year after year and priorities change and money gets shuffled and it can, can become harder and harder to remain sustainable. Uh, so I, I have, my heart goes out to these guys I and mean, they're being asked to do a lot for not very much money. You know, it was brave of them to step up and say, that's it, we're out of here. And, and I think it did, it did succeed in sending a message that they wanted to be sent and hopefully will make this government uh, perk up a little bit and not uh, so casually just cut like the $28 million they cut uh, from children's services previously in the last budget. But in the end, I mean, I think it's there hasn't been a lot more coverage since this came out. And I'm worried that it's just going to be a blip and uh, people will move on and um, Children's Aid will remain in sort of the backwater of policy issues for this government, just as Indigenous reconciliation and opioid 
uh, the opioid crisis have. Yeah, no. And I mean, on that point about sort of squeezing slow roll of decisions that can they can put a, a school board or a, like a children's aid society into this kind of position. I mean, it really reminds me of the power that the province has to sort of shape the world of, of these agencies and how the decision making that is often made in Toronto can be removed from realities on the ground. So like this children's aid society, um, there's a really good article on the Toronto Star uh, that was written before all of this happened on what they were trying to do. So one of the things the board has criticized the government for is not updating its funding model to have a measure that is sensitive basically to their main pressure, which is an influx of cases due to the opiate crisis. They were arguing prior to this happening for the government to change the funding model to better meet their needs. And at the same time, they were trying to innovate by basically what I gather was opening sort of these centers in diverse parts of the Brant area where there were problems that were not sort of that were kind of pre emergency spaces. So like if you were a family that was sort of under watch or considering issue, you could go here uh, and access services, care, free meals, that kind of stuff. And it was according to the Toronto Star and the people and the, and the community members who were accessing this kind of innovative service delivery model, it was working, it was appreciated, it was something different. And so what kind of kills me about this is I used to work on the financial side of the school board piece. And, you know, we would get very worried if a school board was going into deficit. But here's a case where in one of the most difficult situations, you have a children's aid society that is trying to innovate in public policy and basically getting slapped down for it. I'm sure if we were to go to Ministry of Children's Social Services, there would be civil servants who would rightly say they were operating at a higher cost than the rest of the system. We don't give everyone else. And, you know, the board should have known the risks of doing that. Um, and the board should have changed their approach to basically stay sustainable in the model and the current reality that they are. I mean, that is technically correct, but it kind of sucks because it, it's a great example to me of how the provincial government can sometimes be a barrier to innovation on the ground in some of the agencies that we we fund. And I think that the conservatives probably share, have the lion's share of the blame here. But going back to our time in government, I, I, I think these problems started pre-Doug Ford. Um, although, you know, Doug Ford probably poured gasoline on the fire. When I, when I left journalism, I was doing an investigation into a children's aid society that I won't name that came to my attention because a former ward of that aid society came forward because she'd been placed in a home where she'd been sexually abused. And she claimed that the leadership there had been blind to a bunch of homes there had had problems there. It was a really small aid society and a bunch of homes there had actually had major problems with a lot of the children being abused and that a couple of them even had, you know, been rings for generating child pornography. And actually when I dug into it, long story short, there were sort of like Five, five of them had gone to court and the allegations were quite serious and it had gone on for years and it sort of raised this question about how the leadership you know, had not vetted the homes very well and certainly not been very proactive in dealing with some of the problems because in these homes sort of they, they were, they, there were multiple children and it was sort of an open secret often that this was happening in these homes. What it came back to was the leadership cared only about basically coming in on budget that the leadership who had been there were sort of long tenured leadership, their focus solely was operating a sort of fiscally tight ship, and that that was in itself, itself a very difficult thing to accomplish. And they were sort of known throughout Ontario at sort of, I can't remember how regular these, all the CASs would get together to meet, but they were sort of, this leader was sort of known for sort of standing up and saying, yep, we're on budget, that's it. 
end of story. And actually there were sort of employees beneath them who had PTSD from being, feeling sort of squeezed between this was their only focus, but knowing, looking out for the kids and their, uh, the kids whose well-being they were charged with looking out for. And, and sorry, this was to be clear, like this was up under the liberal government at this point that this was happening and in, in the budgetary context of, that we, that we put in place. And my point is that as soon as you make that the only consideration with a vulnerable population like this, this is the kind this is the kind of stuff that's allowed to persist. Like we're talking about this entirely in the wrong way. And this is an incredibly egregious, like extreme outlier example, but it's just so problematic. And you can't kind of play like one game or the other, right? You can't kind of play like this is irresponsible. Like for I, just for the Ford government to talk about CSs in this way is just it, this. This population is too too vulnerable, and I I don't know how they do this. It's dangerous. You know, we talk a lot about the sectors that are getting cut under this government, and you know, like education scene cuts, post secondary scene cuts, healthcare is going to see perhaps not like real cuts, but like per patient cuts probably. And, you know, there'll be, I think, while I am mad about those, like the, I know that there are structures and powerful voices in those sectors that will have the ability to stand up to this government and create a media narrative that is counterproductive because there are services that are used by everyone, including middle class and affluent people. I, I continue to think that this government's most damaging legacy is going to be the shit that they're doing in community social services and with uh, children and youth services because the cuts there are massive and they're real and like that ministry is all transfer payments to the most vulnerable people and that's where you see the most immediate most harmful most damaging effects and it continues to frustrate me that you don't see the same kind of public outcry about what is going on there as you do in healthcare and education just because they're you know bigger more powerful sectors so from the tragic to the more absurd, Ontario Premier Doug Ford is giving up his cell phone. No longer will you be able to call his personal number, which he has famously given out publicly several times, and leave him messages. Aides have said it is because special interest groups were flooding the line with coordinated campaigns, but also pointed out that harassing messages were also part of the mix to the point where the phone was not even usable. Um, I actually can 100% believe that. Uh, CTV also reported that the Premier received several Several pictures of male genitalia, also as well as a variety of hate mail. However, it was also well known that his staff is frustrated with the premier's penchant to use his phone to return calls and re return calls and messages that he received, as well as call randomly and without warning into uh, drive time radio shows. And okay, but I know this is going to stop that. <laughs> Like he doesn't have another cell phone? Well, no, Sorry. and just breaking yesterday, I guess last week when this aired, the loss of his phone has not stopped him from calling into radio shows. Because okay. he <laughs> called into a, uh, I think it was Jerry Agar yesterday, to, oh, right. to pledge to figure out what is happening with a police investigation for an escape murder who was found not criminally responsible for his murder due to mental health issues. He called to express his outrage and that he as premier would figure out personally what is going on. So, I mean... I was going to say this is the end of an era. I'm not entirely sure it is the end of an era. But I'm wondering <laughs> if we can reminisce for a second on our favorite Doug Ford phone moment and maybe ask ourselves if this was a good approach or strategy for him. Have I, have I told you guys I called that phone once? No. <laughs> Just I had to call it uh, as a reporter once for when Greg MacArthur did that big investigation 
on his um, alleged hash dealing days. <laughs> I think it ran on a Monday and I was the Sunday reporter and it was something it was something like that. And I, I had to do like the like one last chance to see if Doug wants to comment call. <laughs> And so because that cell phone was so widely circulated, it was like, well, call Dougie's cell. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually got him. And he and he did a kind of classic Doug Ford, like kind of like, well, you guys, you guys are you guys are just out to get me. And you know, you know, Kate, this has to stop. We had a nice little <laughs> chat, but it was <laughs> don't really have much to add to the article. But yeah, I, I called that cell. It was a good time. Uh, that's a great entry. I, I think that's gonna be a strong contention for favorite Doug Ford phone moment. I will say it is kind of fascinating to watch him evolve into the role, right? Like you, you could barely get away with giving out your cell phone number, I would think as mayor, although obviously Rob Ford did it, but you know, Ontario is a province of 14 million people. I saw somebody tweet that even if 1% called, that is a call every two seconds or something like that. Uh, Like it is, it was always going to be a ridiculous thing to suggest that he could fight fires individually in a province this size. And so this obviously is no surprise that this has happened and that obviously special interest groups were going to use it to their advantage. And obviously people were going to send dick pics like all of this was obviously predictable. So I think it's mostly just funny to me, but I think it's also perhaps a like funny example i think of their overall settling into the being government and having to watch what you say and having to watch how you act uh and it's kind of it's interesting to watch my favorite of his calls which is actually probably one of the more recent ones to make into the media but i i just going back to this whole eugene melnick saga with, with lisa mcleod that we talked about in our last episode where Ford called him like it sounds like twice uh, on the, the day after this had happened on a Thursday. Check in and uh, find out specifically if Lisa McLeod had called him yet to apologize. So he's <laughs> according to he's according to Eugene Melnick, Ford called him and says, "Hi Eugene, I just want to make sure Lisa called you. Did she apologize?" <laughs> and Melnick says, "No." Ford says, "Ah crap, I'll get a hold of her." I mean, like it's just ah. Uh, the province is being run by just a pack of fools. It's great. So, no, my favorite phone moment of all time uh, is the famous, I think the classic Daniel, are you still up text <laughs> that Daniel Enright sent Doug Ford a text message complaining about cuts, uh, his friend getting fired, and a thing never expecting to get something back. And then at 11.18 p.m. received, Daniel, are you still up? Do you have a minute for a call? And it's like the screenshot has like Doug with like DF at the top on his like iPhone. Uh, he also, I know he typed it himself because he said R is spelt with two A's. So there's like some typos in it. And yeah, I mean, I just think it's like, it's like one of the truly special memories in Ontario politics. The premier of Ontario sending a you up text. It's so creepy. It's so weird. So, but um, part of me thinks, and maybe this is just me like being gullible and buying into their like, stupid narrative that they're trying to spend. But like, I think in some ways, this kind of stuff works for them because, well, of course, for the actual business of running government, it is probably incredibly problematic. It has allowed Doug Ford to seem sympathetic and caring when his government has not conducted themselves as such. Like in the way that the budget rolled out, his like random calling into radio shows and pledging to figure out what's going on with this thing that was a policy that his government implemented, like the cuts to legal aid, all that kind of stuff. I think 
led a bit of a proof point to this narrative that he wasn't totally well aware of everything that was happening and made it sort of seem like when he like Candovic Fideli from being the finance minister made it sort of seem to me like part of me wants to give him the benefit of the doubt for like not knowing exactly what they were doing, which doesn't make me like them anymore. And if I, I, you know, I think incompetence is just as bad as malicious intent, but I... Is it though? Is it? I feel like being a little bit hapless is an advantage these days. Being too capable it makes you too liable. I mean, if you go back, it's like, <laughs> right? True. Like, um, it, this is uh, the 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 sort of. I feel like the person who invented this really. The, this is um, George W. Bush sort of really <laughs> nailed, like, or invented, or really is the mastermind of this playbook. <laughs> it's like everybody he could just really, I mean, mess things up, and and everybody was just like, well, God love him, <laughs> like, and and since then, I just you can I can name a, there's a bunch of politicians who just get forgiven so much because they're authentic. You get to be dumb because it's just you. And then and then if you're capable, well you're conniving. You're too calculated. It's not real. Can you imagine like if Kathleen Wynne had sent a you up <laughs> text? <laughs> right. Like it wouldn't have gone right. Well. It would just it would be just received as so um insipid. It would just no like no. The uh, the Ashok's government um, strikes again. Um, and that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. We actually recorded a little bit more, which we will be releasing in a bonus episode uh, sometime later this week, probably Friday. Uh, and this is actually going to be our second last episode, full episode, um, before we go on a little bit of a summer holiday. But we will be back in September with some federal election coverage which we are really excited to bring you as always you can donate on patreon at patreon.com slash ontario loud or ontario aisha anwar does our social media uh, so i want to send a big shout out to her thank you so much for all that you do and thank you to you for listening we'll see you next week <laughs>